Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. This is the Ocean Protect podcast. Talking about the issues that face our oceans and what we can do about it. Presented by Ocean Protect. Committed to change. So just getting back to your study. So today you looked at catching and analysing snakes from, I think, four wetland environments near Perth. How many snakes have you caught and and what sort of analysis are you actually doing on these snakes? So over the entire PhD, I've caught over 500 tiger snakes, including recaptured snakes. So I think about around 350 unique individuals from four different wetlands. And then, yeah, a bunch of these other snakes. I've, I've caught them the subsequent year. I think there's only a handful off the top of my head that I've caught three years in a row. But basically, we've gone out, we've collected the snakes in that first study that you mentioned with the really huge title. That was kind of the introductory paper to my thesis of, righto, we want to see what contaminants they're accumulating, what they're exposed to. So I do my desktop research in the beginning of looking at, you know, like government reports, water quality monitoring, all these kind of publicly available reports on what contaminants have been measured, what levels they are. Of the four lakes that I'm studying, which I obviously had to pick because I had tiger snakes there, I didn't have the freedom to just pick as many lakes as I wanted. Mm. Yeah, these four lakes had hardly any studies done or any publicly available data on contaminants Mm. measured there. There There was a handful that over you know, 20, 30 years, it might have measured cadmium and mercury and lead like a couple of the classic ones. But we didn't have good enough data to basically judge what they should be exposed to. So, we decided let's just go do it ourselves. Let's just take some sediment mm. samples from the lakes and let's take some tiger snakes from the lakes. The best tissue to test for most organisms is the liver because that's the one that's filtering everything that they're mm. eating, getting exposed to. And also, a lot of these compounds, some metals, bunch of pesticides and hydrocarbons they bind to the fat really well so if you've got a healthy animal mm. with a lot of fat in it fat in the liver it binds there so you look at the liver which means you have to euthanize the animal most of the time otherwise it's a very expensive procedure to you know put them under yeah, cut them open and take a little bit of liver out and yeah recover them all that so yeah we sacrificed a couple of snakes from each of the wetlands and then when we cut them open we can we can see measure all these internal parasites in them as well and body mm. condition and all this stuff. And we sent the livers off, we sent the sediment samples off and we just did a broad scale test for like 52 different contaminants of all the ones that are commonly measured in the area, part of your usual monitoring of for contamination. Like heavy metals, like poly, aromatic hydrocarbons, yep, and yep. oils and like stuff, like stuff that you could probably classic road pollutants, like they're all the nasties mm-hmm. basically. 
yeah, what should be out there and what are the like the government guideline kind of normal soil sediment compounds that are monitored for. Didn't pick up any hydrocarbons or organic pesticides except in one sediment sample at one site, which was kind of considered our second most urbanized site, Bibra Lake. That was one sediment sample. So, you know, just like a 10 centimeter deep mm. bit of soil that we dug out. It was right next to a road. And of all the hydrocarbons and pesticides we picked up, they all exceeded government guideline concentrations. The, mm. the lower end of concentrations, but, you know, as you'd expect, it's right by a road that's probably receiving the most yeah. runoff. In saying that, we only had four sediment samples at, at each wetland because uh, it was quite expensive to do this testing. So we were mainly picking up metals. We picked up metals in everything because obviously most of these elements are naturally present anyway in sediments, yeah. especially arsenic's a really interesting one in Perth. It's in really quite high uh, abundances in Perth sediment. Yeah. So, yeah, we basically just tested our sediment. We got 17 metals that we got accurate data from. I think 15 of them were found in the tiger snakes. And mm. the concentrations were reflective of the wetland they were in. You know, if it's high, if one metal's particularly high at Herdsman Lake, it's highest in the snakes as well compared to all the other sites. Right. Yeah. So there's a really strong link between essentially polluted sediment and contamination in, in the snakes, yeah. essentially. Yeah. Yeah. And are you seeing a sort of a pattern in terms of uh, some areas uh, more polluted than others generally? So obviously you've only got a sample size of four, but is it fair to say that like the downstream urban areas, are they generally more polluted than sort of other areas? Yeah. So my for that first study, my sample size was so small. We had five snakes per site and four sediment samples uh -huh. per site. And we kind of split them up into like, you know, north, south or east, west of the site, depending on the orientation mm. of it. So we, so we kind of split it, but it wasn't really robust enough to look for like spatial patterns within a wetland. Mm. Whereas the second study where I was looking at the scales, we have a much larger sample size. We've got like 30 snakes per site collected over a geographic range. Yeah, we should talk about that sampling methodology because it is different. So the, sec the first study essentially caught snakes and opened them up and, and took a sample of the liver. So it was obviously I'm guessing quite expensive uh, analysis to do. But the second study... I'm, am I right in saying this is a, a technique that's actually been developed now, for, I guess, as part of your investigation? You actually take a sample of the scales of the snake as an indicator of contamination in that snake? Yeah. Is that, is that correct? Yeah, yeah, that's correct. So I'm not being a chemist, uh, but my basic understanding of the methods uh, that we've used, the first study we're looking at sediment and livers, we just sent samples off to uh, a chemistry lab on campus and they did a basic digestion acid digestion method on the samples where i believe they put the tissue in acid melt it down and then they can dilute the solution out and then they can run it through a mass spectrometer and measure the concentration of all these different elements in this sample uh, which is quite expensive like you know you pay for more there's more time and for every different element that you want to test for mm. you kind of got to do like mm. a separate little test for it uh, and you need a certain amount of tissue to do it. Uh, so we were screening for 52 different contaminants in a snake liver, which was like four to eight grams. And we couldn't actually get really fine scale mm. when we split it up into 52 different pieces, you know. Whereas this other technique called laser ablation, which is developed for rocks generally, you know, mm. mining and stuff, use it to, to yeah. measure different elements in rocks. So we've got a center here on Curtin that, that's their specialty and they do a lot of research with that. Um, this technique's pretty cool. They actually run a laser over the, the rock or in our case, the tissue. 
And wh- whatever the laser is touching, it atomizes everything, blows it all up, separates it all into its atoms, and it's in a vacuum-sealed box. And so there's basically a vacuum inhaling. And as all the atoms get inhaled, it's measuring them as they go by. So you can run this fine line, and as you're timing the measurement, you can actually measure different element concentrations like you know in every micrometer that you measure as the line's going across so you can actually map patterns of metals within a rock or tissue and this sorry this tissue you just take a little sample of the of one of the scales i guess and you bottle that up and do this analysis yeah 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 so in this particular case we take one of the belly scales of a tiger snake, which is like the largest scale on them, and we clip it off and it's just like clipping a fingernail. You know, it doesn't, oh, okay. doesn't hurt the snake. It's not ripping the scale out or anything. It's just taking like the overhanging flappy bit. We give it a wash to make sure there's no surface contamination on them uh, and, and I dry it out so there's no water moisture left in it before it goes into the vacuum. And then, yeah, basically we put it in these lasers, just little robot just runs along zigzagging and gives us a measurement of we got 19 different accurate metal measurements out of it. Mm. So for organic tissue, there's a few interferences. So you can't accurately measure every metal. That's one limitation of this method. But the advantage of it is you can basically get this machine to measure almost every element in the periodic table as that laser goes across at once. So you can tell it which ones to record and then you can filter out which ones aren't accurate, which might have interferences uh, and not give you an accurate number. But you know, you can get any size piece of tissue basically and run this laser over it um, and, and measure a whole amazing. bunch of different elements in one go. And I guess the – so you're obviously interested in, in measuring levels of contamination in the in the tissue. So I'm guessing you're focusing on heavy metals and, and I guess things that can kill species. So, so what, did, what did you find? What, what, what did the results show? First of all, we, we looked at 26 metals and then uh, we did repeats – tests to see which ones are accurate to use this laser technique on biological tissue that narrowed it down to 19 of these metals we then compared the metals that we had liver data for and sediment data for from my previous study we compared those concentrations to the ones in the scale and we found a very similar pattern to Mm. the liver study basically you know if the element's particularly high in one site it's going to be high in the scales of that snake as well we could also do a correlation between some of those metals for what was in the liver and what was in the scales of the same snake to see if the scale is actually reflecting what's inside the liver of the snake. We only found four elements that matched their liver data, which means when you get a measure of those elements in the scale, you can say, okay, then it's, it's a correlated to what's in the liver of the snake. Which is pretty cool. So this new technique of analysing the scales is actually shown to be pretty representative of essentially killing the snake and analysing its liver uh, at a much greater cost. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You can go out, you can pick an animal up, take a sample off it and then get this nice measurement and then you can infer what's inside the liver for a handful of these Mm. elements. We we were hoping it would be a bit more, like 4 out of 19 is not very big, but the thing with the chemical partitioning of a lot of these elements is some of them bind better to keratin in the scale than they do liver tissue. So what we're finding in the scale is still a good result. It's still reflecting what's in the environment. And because they were reflecting those sediment samples really nicely, we were basically saying, okay, like we've got these high numbers of this of all these elements in these snakes from this site in their scales. It's you know, and all the snakes, we've got 30 snakes from that site and they're all coming back pretty high. So it's got to be a pretty accurate representation of that wetland. 
And so these contamination levels are high. So you're, what you're telling me is is the pollution levels in the snakes and subsequently inferred in the wetlands is actually quite high. So snakes being a bioindicator of pollution, the, the snakes are essentially uh, have high concentrations of a whole bunch of pollutants indicating that the wetland environment is essentially polluted. Basically, is that a fair call? Uh, it's a little bit more complicated than that. With our scale study, we don't know yet what the concentration in the scale reflects to sediment, say. We don't know what, mm. what, we don't know what concentration in the scale means that's how much the snake's got in its body, which means that's how, mm. how much mm. toxic that is to it. What we do know now is we have a baseline of mm. what snakes from less contaminated sites have, what captive snakes have. We, we, you know, we measured a bunch of captive snakes as well, so found like this is what the element concentration should be there. And how did, the, how did those numbers compare? So how did, how did the captive or uh, the, the, I'm guessing, snakes in like a zoo, how do their concentrations of, of heavy metals, et cetera, compare to snakes caught in the, the Perth wetlands? Oh, they were super low. So out of the 19 metals we measured, basically calcium and zinc were all pretty similar uh, there's a couple more magnesium. Just looking at the paper now. Um, <laughs> thallium, I think that one is. They were all pretty similar in captive snakes to wild snakes. Some of these elements, like zinc and calcium, you know, they're trace elements for the body. They're being regulated all the time, mm. so they're probably not mm. accumulating. Like the body can just deal with higher abundances. Well. Yeah. But for all these other ones, we were getting levels of like five up to twenty-five, thirty-five times higher in wild snakes. So, mm. you know, we don't know what concentration is toxic, but we, we're seeing numbers up to 35 times higher. So, higher levels of contamination in the snakes in the wetlands yeah. for quite a few, uh, I guess, pollutant indicators or heavy metals. And, and yeah. That sort of stuff. yeah, yeah. And we can't, when you're looking at these metals individually, you know, like, so the sediment guidelines are really nice because... There's been a whole bunch of scientists that have gone together and used all their knowledge and all their captive experiments to work out like what a concentration minimum is before it should start having a toxic effect on biota. We don't know what that is for the snakes. We don't have a baseline for any of that. So the, mm. the sediment guidelines are good, but you know, you might have cadmium, for example, that's might be under the sediment guidelines. So you think that's not much, but we're finding it higher in these urban wetlands than not. And then when you start looking at all these other metals that we've looked at, like we've got 19 different elements, if all of them are three times higher in one mm. wetland and one snake, a lot of these elements can have like a synergistic effect on, on each other where they're not yeah. like added together, but you know, they're like reacting with each other and we have no idea what that is yet. But you just have to assume an animal living in this environment that's that's got three to five times the concentration of 17 different metals in them. It's surely got to be having some kind of flow-on effect than what they should be normally exposed to, you know? Yeah, it's like walking down the street. If you, if if one person punches you in the head, and you can probably handle that, but if there's twenty individuals punch you in the head, and there's thirty others kicking you up the bum, yeah, you sort of uh, you know you, you suffer a little bit more than you would otherwise. And I think that's yeah, probably yeah. happening. That the, the these wetland environments, seemingly downstream of these urban environments, uh, I guess almost like a, a, a bit of a 
toxic soup, for want of a better word. It's easy to sort of uh, establish guideline levels for various contaminants when you actually analyze them on an individual level. Mm-hmm. So, oh, yeah, the safe level for arsenic is X, the safe level for cadmium is, is Y. But if you add arsenic and cadmium and everything else that might be associated with the, the wetland environment, almost the, the guideline levels are almost thrown out the window. Are these contamination being observed in the sort of snake scales on livers? Do we know if that's actually impacting on the health of these snakes? So that is my final PhD question that I'm working on at the moment. And that, that should be coming out uh, later on this year, I think. I'm, I'm mostly the way through analysis and just trying to tease out all the different statistical options I have and what's the correct way of doing it. Mm. But yeah, I can generally see that snakes appear like from a combination of parameters less healthy mm. in these more polluted wetlands. Body conditions kind of the main one. The biggest limitation of my study on that aspect is I only have four wetlands to compare with. Yeah. Which is hard to tease out. Is it the pollution of these sites or is it a bunch of other things that I haven't measured, but yeah. I've tried to measure as many yeah. possible things and standardize as many things as I can. Yeah, I feel that the snakes are not basically holding as conditioned as well and being able to live probably as long in these more polluted sites. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. And that's the thing, it must be quite almost subjective. Like uh, there's so many different variables across the four wetlands and then you can think about all the wetlands across the all the subject areas that you've probably looked at in your uh, career. But I guess you, you probably have seen thousands of snakes, so you probably have a good idea of just to, you know, just eyeballing different sort of patterns of health across different snake uh, from different uh, environments and yeah, I'm, I'm guessing you're probably sort of insinuating to me that, yeah, the snakes in these urban wetland environments just seem a bit unhealthier than other environments. Yeah. Recognising you still got to do the analysis and, and you know, try and minimise the variables, but mm. there's a general pattern, do you think, that snakes in these urban environments are a little bit less healthy? Yeah, I feel that. I feel like my research to be as clear and accurate as possible is probably going to just present and discuss the health of these snakes at each wetland as its own thing as opposed to, you know, like a degree of urbanisation or a degree of pollution or something because Mm. they're so complex in themselves. But the most urbanised wetland, this Herdsman Lake, definitely has the most unhealthy snakes uh, with the lowest number Mm. of parasites, which means it's not really parasites that's causing them bad health. Yeah. 
they've got a huge degree of tail loss. Like their tails are just falling off, which we're trying to work out what's going on there. And it's worth noting, as we sort of indicated at the start of the um, chat, like these the tiger snakes are actually a very hardy species. So if the if the hardy outliving the dinosaurs, uh, tiger snakes is uh, showing signs of ill health. You can imagine what's that's how that how that I guess contamination is, is in, impacting on the health of you know more sensitive species like the frogs and the and the insects and the yeah you know, everything else that probably no one really sort of can eyeball uh, walking their dog next to the park. You know, there's must be so many different sort of uh, critters and organisms that are, are fantastic indicators of uh, water our health, but we just can't readily measure as easily as a as a snake scale. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, maybe maybe I'm getting it all wrong and there's nothing or the pollution levels aren't toxic enough yet to be to be causing these effects or having these effects, but at least I'm generating a baseline for all these things and as Perth continues to grow, yeah. you know, we know what's there yeah. and then if it gets worse and we have a measurement to compare to in the future and then you can see if these things are disappearing or if they're getting in worse condition and stuff, you know. And I think that's important for our urban research around Australia as a whole that, you know, we're just generating these baseline values in your indicator mm. species in these wetlands, snakes and mm. frogs and mm. birds and things. And just, just so we know what's there and what's persisting there at the moment, what are the levels? And, you know, at least we'll be able to know if it changes what, what might be causing a decline. So I guess the next question is, uh, what's causing this contamination? What's causing this pollution in these wetland environments? Yeah, that's a, I get asked this one a lot. It's a really difficult question for me because I only have a handful of yeah. uh, papers that I've read to get information from and uh, a few experts in the government that I've spoken to and a couple of sediment samples and some snake samples that I've generated numbers from. But stormwater is obviously a huge one for any human-induced pollution. A lot of these wetlands, particularly Herdsman Lake, uh, actually has like five large stormwater drains, at least 12 smaller ones that feed into it from the greater northern Perth suburbs. So it was designed and dredged out. It used to be a swamp originally, and now it's kind of dug out in these kind of like big lakes and it's got these channels through it to basically like take all this stormwater and fill it up so it gets filtered before it goes out into the ocean, mm. which, yeah, is kind of saying that we're using it to just dump all our stuff into. It's basically like a wet dump. Yeah. Before it before it goes out, there's also historic contamination. Two out of my four wetlands uh, have historical dumping sites uh, that mm. actually have landfill, so there can be a lot of metal in there. Arsenic is a really interesting one in Perth that is present uh, quite naturally in the sediment. It's not really bioavailable; like it's locked away in the pyritic soil. But because a lot of these wetlands have been dredged and drained, and the water table. Mm -hmm underneath Perth that connects all the wetlands. It has a lot of water taken out of it for agriculture historically. Mm. Mm. So you've got these wetlands dropping. You've got these sediments now that are usually submerged and have been submerged for thousands of years. They're now exposed to the air and cracking, drying out and cracking open. And the water in the cracks is becoming acidified. And that acidification basically releases all these metals that have been accumulated. So we're seeing mm. really high levels mm. of arsenic and occasionally copper and zinc might be released from these pyritic soils as well. So what, what was naturally held there, like kind of an, an indirect disturbance from humans is changing the, the chemistry of the sediment and the soil. And now this stuff's ending up, it's ending up in the snake, so we can assume it's ending up in everything else there. Mm, yeah. And even though it's not deliberately introduced mm. from pollution, 
it's just still a byproduct of of disturbing uh, the environment, basically. Yeah, it's pro- there probably is a, a combination of factors, and you can see how draining wetland environments and oxidizing the sort of uh, metals within the soil and making them more bioavailable and, and release more easily would have an impact. But certainly, yeah, for, if I put my stormwater hat on, I, I just know firsthand that the, the the pollution that runs off our water, uh, our urban areas, is pretty foul. And when you consider how large some of these urban environments are. The scale of that impact is quite significant in, in, indeed. And I think for, for Perth, it's an area that really hasn't done much in the way of stormwater treatment up until probably recently. Um, so I think even new development in, in Perth up until maybe a year or two ago didn't have to put any stormwater treatment assets in at all. Mm. So you can imagine the vast majority of urban environments in Perth in particular would have zero stormwater treatment. So yeah, stormwater pollution would just run straight into our into those waterways uh, from the urban environments. Um, so, yeah, look, I'd probably suggest that a key source of the the contamination in those wetlands is stormwater. Certainly, other the other aspects, the draining of the wetland environments, wouldn't help. But certainly, every time it rains, having that sort of kick in the guts from stormwater runoff and more pollution certainly would be a, a key factor. And again, I, I, I keep thinking about you know we, we're focusing a lot of our, our attention on snakes, but you know the the other sort of uh, critters uh, and I guess wetland ecology indicators, which is uh, I think they'd be significantly impacted from those uh, those uh, pollution uh, levels. If the snakes are showing signs of poor health, I'm sure those other ones are, are struggling uh, way more. Yeah, exactly, and it's something I would definitely like to get into measuring and and assessing in the future. You know. Well, we can certainly help you with that. We, we do a lot of stormwater monitoring uh, at various sites. So it's, 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 a, little, it's a fair bit of, uh, I guess, expertise and, and know-how, I guess, associated with actually appropriately monitoring stormwater quality because uh, literally you have to do it when it's raining and yeah. and when it's raining, it's hard to do monitoring. So do you, you basically got to set up a whole bunch of automatic samplers and, and appropriately store the samples and then do them do appropriate analysis in in and suitably uh, set up labs. So, um, yeah, but we've been doing that for a long time, but certainly I can point to uh, if, if you need any further help in the stormwater game, I'm certainly more, ha- more than happy to point in the, in the right direction and, and maybe if I should protect and uh, help you with it in any way, we'd be more than happy to do that. But, gee whiz, has been a fascinating chat. Like I said, I, I didn't really know much about snakes uh, prior to uh, talking to you and, and looking at your research, but, gee whiz, it's interesting. It's a really interesting envi- area that the fact that just – like these wetland environments obviously have been around for a long time and this research is quite, I guess, in many ways groundbreaking, innovative and and you're almost uh, just trying to establish a baseline in these wetland environments, which is remarkable really given that, um, you know, urban environments have been encroaching on our wetland environments for, for many, many, many years. So I take my hat off to the research. But a couple of, a couple of questions need to be asked, like uh, in terms of, safety and and risk so you are obviously very well experienced for 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 joe public wanting to sort of i guess try to avoid their encounters with snakes or any sort of hot tips and tricks that you can suggest like uh i always thought because i'm i've got two little dogs and i'm always nervous about the dogs getting sort of nibbled on by a snake but uh, is there anything that sort of people just walking in the park and or near near a creek or a water waterway or wetland can do just simply to avoid getting bitten or is the risk just really, really, really low? Yeah, the risk is really low. Luckily, almost all of our snakes in Australia are terrestrial and they're not really good at climbing. So the number one thing is to be looking down at the ground where you're, where you're treading. Um, <laughs> when you're in an area with mowed grass, first of all, snakes don't really like being out there. They're really exposed. They feel really vulnerable. So you're pretty safe 
when you're in an open, clean environment. It's when you're kind of walking through that longer grass uh, that mm. they, they could be in there. So it's just keeping an eye on where you're walking, what you're treading on every time you're stepping. The usual rule of thumb with a snake in the length it can strike and bite is probably half its body length, but it's always safe to, to stay within an entire of its body length away from it. You know, if it's one meter, stay at one meter away from it at the bare minimum and just slowly back away from them when you see them. They, like I said earlier, they're, they're going to freeze or they're going to do the bolt or occasionally they're going to puff their necks up and make a hiss and make a big scene and maybe come towards you a bit to scare you off. And that's when people really freak out and that's when you can trip over and run away and stuff. So, like, first thing is keep an eye where you're walking. You see a snake, freeze. It's probably going to freeze as well. If it doesn't bolt off immediately, take a few steps back and just slowly get away from it. And making noise or stomping on the ground loudly doesn't make any difference, is that no, is that, right? that, that generally doesn't make a difference at all. They, they don't have ears, so they can't hear anything, first of all. Um, <laughs> <laughs> stomping on the ground, I think anecdotally, it's usually like a snake has already seen you when you're seeing it. And then yeah. the fact that you're moving is probably like, oh, crap, I'm just getting out of here anyway. You know, it's yeah. an actual vibration. Yeah, yeah. Like, I've seen heaps of snakes that live along train lines and stuff. You know, they're feeling huge vibrations mm. every day that they don't care yeah. about that. Like, <laughs> Yeah, no, it's more visual and smell snakes work off. So quite often when you get close enough that they'll start to smell you and then they'll go, oh, crap, something's in my space. I don't know what it is. Um, then they'll see you and then they're like, okay, this thing's huge. I'm tiny. I'm getting out of here. <laughs> so if people are keen for some more, how to avoid uh, uh, snakes uh, advice uh, or just want to learn more about your research, what's the best way to people to get in contact with you? Uh, directly would be my curtain email address. I'll put all that in the show notes. So, yeah, Twitter and the uh, university email address. I'll, I'll include all those in the show notes. So, that's all good. Yeah, but, cool. uh, look, Damien, thanks so much for joining us on our uh, Ocean Protect podcast. You're the first episode of the year, but, uh, gee whiz, it's been fascinating. And I and honestly I look forward to seeing the results of, your, of, of, of I guess, your, your further research. So, when, when should – this is, the I guess, the penultimate question is um, – when do you think you'll be finishing your PhD research? Uh, well, I run out of money in September. Um, <laughs> September it is. Yeah, so probably September. Yeah. yeah. I've got a couple, couple of papers in the works at the moment. So, you know, I say slap four to six months on that timeline before they're out. Hey, look, you're doing pretty well. Like for, for a PhD candidate who's already got you know, articles written up in uh, various news outlets, and this I think is your second podcast uh, as well. So you, you're quite, you must be quite the the celebrity on university grounds. Thank you. Right, saying that uh, it's starting to, to seem that way. Apparently, I was with a lot of buzzwords. <laughs> yeah, cool. Uh, I think it's pretty cool research. I think I think you're getting far more attention than you, than you than probably the quantum physics uh, research lab put it that way. So, uh, but yeah, again, thanks so much for uh, coming on our little show today. And honestly, well done on some fantastic uh, and innovative research. And I, I certainly wish you all your best to uh, in your, the rest of your PhD. And uh, fingers crossed, we'll see you uh, wrap up things in September. Thank you very much. Then thanks for having me. I look forward to listening to a couple of your other podcasts. Um, they seem like a really cool show. And if I have any stormwater questions, I'll know who to ask. Absolutely. Thanks for listening to the Ocean Protect podcast. If you'd like to find out more about us and what we do, check us out at oceanprotect.com.au.